Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. You see it on the news. You see it on the paper. You see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. He would hide up in the ceiling tiles and drop down after, and it was typically after the person had left for the night after they were done restocking an inventory or whatever they were supposed to do, he had come down, robbed it, and left. So we have no idea why this turned out so differently, why she was the one that ended up having her life taken, whereas no one else had. He hadn't murdered anybody else. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting with Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen. And just in case you thought I was gone forever, I am back again. Back again. I'm alive. What what an episode with just me and Billy. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) How was it? I haven't listened to it. Can you give me like a little recap of how it went? Honestly, Billy and I are... You know, we're a well-oiled machine. I, I mean, yeah. I mean, we're very used to this uh, dynamic, but I was texting Jared behind your back, Jack, and I was just like, hey, if this ever happens again, you should literally stand in for Jack. Not oh, my God. Oh, my God. That would be awesome. Not acknowledge you're not Jack <laughs> and just be Jack. And that would be I love this. Great. Wouldn't that be fucking funny? And I was like, I love time, this. Because, like, I think about it. I'm like, someday something will happen to me. I'll have a surgery. Someone will stand in. I'm like, someone should stand in for me and, like, not even address that. <laughs> It's not me. And Jer- Jared would be the like substitute teacher that no one knows about. He's like the understudy, but like how he'd be like, welcome to the first degree. My name is Jared Monaco. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter, Billy Jensen, and just never acknowledge that that is weird <laughs> or not here. normal. Right. Yeah. I think this is a great idea. Right. I know. That was the first time any that has ever happened because... It's true. In four years. We've always figured it out before then. Mm-hmm. Well, we usually film... Or film. We usually record a little bit in advance, but that was the last day that we could have recorded at all to get an episode out that week. And I was, you know, still on anesthesia at the point that I was texting <laughs> you guys that you needed to do it without me. <laughs> like, we did please. miss you though we did we miss did. you though but we have a ga- well listen now we have a, a code word a game plan for if if jack has tragedy a strikes. out again yeah um and yeah i think jared should be our stand-in for each of us i love it but like without it. acknowledgement i love we just i think we should just roll into it like mm-hmm. yes you know how they do on the news where it's like i'm this person so-and-so's off it's yeah. just he just rolls in like he's a pro because he is <laughs> I love that. 
Um, Billy, what day is it today? All right. Well, today is an interesting one. So today's uh, Wednesday, December 15th. It is National Cupcake Day. Mm, okay. But it's also National Lemon Cupcake Day. I did Ew. see this. I wonder which one Why? came first and who was the petty little fucker that came in there and was like, nope. Always happens. I'm stealing your thunder. Always happens. You know, that you see this a lot. Why Lemon Cupcake Day? I don't know. I don't know why they have to do this thing. Um, I'm sorry, Lex, that it has to, you know, it's not necessarily cooked fruit. Lemon cupcakes no. usually uh, lemon flavored cake, but um, I knew it would probably disturb you. I'm not into it. I'm not into it either. I'm not, not about a cupcake. No. Have something decadent and delicious, exactly. not lemon. Chocolatey, creamy. Yeah. Red velvet goodness. That's right. Sprinkles. Yes. Mm. Mm. Yeah, any other, I don't think there's any other good days, are there? No. International Tea Day. No. Cat Herders Day. You know, yeah. Boring. You would think that that close to Christmas, we'd have some other sort of a festive day. Something yeah, jaunty. But... Maybe they're saving it up for, you know, the week before Christmas. Yeah. I guess we'll see. All right. Sure well, that is enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. Wait, before we do that, who did my part of that last week? Probably me. Yeah, no. it was. I, I wanted to. But Alexis <laughs> I I is like, no. It. No. <laughs> She's my the best legit. friend. She's my best <laughs> friend. Just like, no, it's my she time to want, shine. She'd want me to do it. <laughs> I would. That's what I was asking. I love yeah. this. Just figuring out the details. All right. Totally. And we'll move into the case now. We often cover stories where the killer is caught fairly quickly, but knowing who is responsible for murdering your loved one is not a luxury all victims' families are awarded. As we know, not all murders get solved. So what happens to those families that never get justice? How does the pain and trauma trickle down through generations? These are some of the questions we'll be exploring in today's case. we begin today's case on June 7th of 1987. This was like three weeks after I was born. And it was an interesting time for music. On the top five music charts, you have I Want to Dance with Somebody by Whitney Houston and also Under the Boardwalk by Bruce Willis. The Untouchables and Harry and the Hendersons were in theaters. And in sports news, the Yankees had just played their 13,000th game. Wow. The setting for today's case is Largo, Florida, which is the fourth largest city in the Tampa Bay area, population around 84,000. Largo was named after either what used to be one of the largest lakes in the area, Largo Lake, which they drained in the 1930s, or after Largo, Scotland, one of the area's early settlers. It got its start in exporting agricultural products, and it's now a bedroom community. So at this point, we'd like to introduce you to Tiffany, who's our first degree for today's case. And she grew up near Largo, as did her extended family. So I was born and raised here in Florida. I was born and raised in Dunedin, and we still lived over in Dunedin at that time, which is only, 
about 15, 20 minutes from Largo. Growing up, Tiffany always felt like there was a dark cloud hovering above her family. And there was a good reason why. Tiffany's paternal grandmother, Susan Heiliger, had been murdered years prior when she was 42 years old. And her killer had never been apprehended. And Tiffany was still a toddler when Susan was killed, but she still felt the loss of her grandma every single day. Being a child, you see everybody else with their grandparents and having grandparents day where their grandma comes and all the things. Thankfully, I mean, my mother's side of the family, I still have my grandparents on that side and they were around, but you can't not think about, I wonder if grandma Susan would be here. You know, and I would have two grandmas with me today and not just one. And what your relationship would have been like with her had this not happened. As Tiffany grew up, her questions of what if persisted. And she bore witness to the havoc this tragedy inflicted on her family. Because the killer didn't just steal Susan's life. He inadvertently stole the lives of her family members as well. So what happened to Susan Heiliger? Who killed her? And how did the lack of justice impact her family? And finally, would Susan's loved ones ever get the justice they so badly needed? So, as you know, to answer these questions, you know the drill, we gotta go back. Susan Norma Walls was born on March 15, 1945 in Pennsylvania to parents Pearl and William. In September 1962, 17-year-old Susan married Douglas Sheeler in New Jersey. They had five children together, Doug, who are first degree Tiffany, that's her father, Eric, Jason, Lori, and Jessica. And after being married for around 10 years, Susan separated from Douglas and moved to Florida with her five children. She started working as a bartender, and she quickly found out that she had a real knack for it. People loved Susan, and her nickname behind the bar was Red, which I love. And we'll let Tiffany explain why. That was her nickname because she had wildly red hair. Whether it was natural or dyed, one does not know. My mother doesn't even know if it was natural or not. And so, you know, she had her regulars and her following of people that would come in and everybody called her red. And she was one of those people that's very easygoing, great, like very easy to get along with, like the best friend that you could have, really just very fun and outgoing. So people loved her. In 1977, Susan was bartending at a club on Madeira Beach when she met Bill Heiliger. They hit it off immediately. Bill later said that he fell totally in love with Susan's generous and kind heart. On November 27, 1982, Susan and Bill married after announcing their wedding details by writing on chalkboards at local bars. And we have a picture of their wedding photo. It looks like they are um, right in front of the water. Uh, he's dressed they in a dark so suit. They look so cute. They actually look, white. They look yeah. super, happy. super I, happy. I love this. They look like, I don't know, if you looked in a in a book about like happy couple, it's like <laughs> they look like a happy couple. They like really go together too. Susan has this like curly, short, I'm assuming bright red hair. Um, and he has a little mustache and they're just smiling and laughing. And I'm sure it was a very wonderful day. They're adorbs. Yep. So... They get married, and despite being very much in love, the first few years of their marriage were rough because money was tight, and Susan's kids were exhibiting some behavioral issues. So this isn't uncommon, though. I mean, they're 
involved in a divorce. Behavioral issues are sort of a residual effect of that. So not too much to be alarmed by, but by 1987, things were different. Susan and Bill's life seemed to have really evened out and leveled off. The kids were mostly grown and money was no longer as tight. So the couple even started talking about opening a retirement account, buying a house and doing, you know, like settling into just like normal life. Bill would later say of that time, it was all coming together. By June of 1987, Susan had been bartending at the Country Club Lounge for around six months. And in the past, she'd worked in some kind of seedy places, but the lounge was different. Bill described it as being the, quote, nicest and safest bar that she had ever worked at. The lounge itself was located in a shopping center on East Bay Drive in Largo. And on one side was a coin laundry, and on the other side was an adjoining liquor store. And according to the Tampa Tribune, the lounge catered to a small crowd of regulars and sold as many soft drinks as mixed ones. And it was like Cheers. It was a bar where everybody knows your name. But it was in this nice and safe bar that tragedy would ultimately strike. On June 7, 1987, Susan worked the closing shift at the lounge. At 1.59 a.m., she made her last sale and started her closeout duties. She checked the bathrooms to make sure that they were clear. Then she ushered out the lingering patrons through the front door so she could close up. She waved them goodbye, as she always did, and she locked the deadbolt. Susan was the only person working that night, so she was taking every precaution to make sure that she was locked safely inside before she started working on restocking, counting the register, cleaning, etc. And then at around 6.30 a.m. the following morning, a janitor arrived for a shift at the lounge. And when he entered the premises, he was horrified to discover Susan behind the counter. She'd never left. She'd been severely beaten and ultimately murdered. The janitor instantly felt guilt rush over him because he said that he was scheduled to meet Susan at around 2 a.m. the previous night to help clean the bar, but he fell asleep and he didn't wake up till 6 a.m. Whew, this poor guy. Not his fault. Happens to fucking everyone, you know? sucks. But it's not his fault. Like, honestly, in, in the truth is he could have been killed too. Things are what they are and how awful for him to feel so terrible though, but what the hell happened to Susan and who would do this? And why would someone do this? It seems so senseless. So when detectives arrived, they observed that Susan had been severely beaten with a bowling trophy that was missing from its home on the shelf above her. And they were sure that this was one of the weapons used because around and under Susan's body were these little pieces of the trophy that broke off as the killer bludgeoned her. And as if beating her with a trophy wasn't bad enough, the killer had slit her throat with a knife that was missing from a nearby food area. There were broken bottles and turned over chairs all over the bar. It was obvious that Susan had fought hard for her life. Detectives learned that Susan's purse was missing, and so was $600 from the register, leading investigators to theorize that robbery was the motive behind Susan's murder. But when they searched for a sign of forced entry, they didn't find one. The front door to the lounge was even locked. So how had the killer gotten in? Investigators soon found their answer near the men's restroom. That's where they found a gaping hole in the ceiling where the tiles used to be. The suspects had been hiding in the four-foot-tall crawl space above the ceiling. And that's why Susan didn't know someone was inside the lounge. It appeared that this gaping hole was actually how the suspect dropped down from the ceiling. 
He either fell through there or busted his way out. Either way, investigators needed to find the suspect's entry point. Inside the restroom, they noticed a few ceiling tiles that were askew. They also found a shoe print on a urinal. And they figured that's how the suspect made his way into the ceiling. Investigators now had a general theory about what happened to Susan. The suspect was in the bar during operating hours, but at some point before closing, he went and hid in the ceiling and waited for everybody to leave. Once he thought the coast was clear, he dropped down from the ceiling and attacked Susan. Susan's autopsy painted a clear picture of what happened next. She put up a major fight against her attacker, which caused many defensive bruises and abrasions. The fight made its way toward the counter, the killer most likely looking for a weapon, while Susan was hoping to press one of the two silent alarms located near the register. Once they were behind the counter, the attacker grabbed the trophy off the shelf and started hitting Susan in the head. But she was still fighting back. Susan would not give up. And the attacker started manually strangling Susan so forcefully that the chain of her necklace left impressions on her skin. But Susan still wasn't letting this attacker win. She kept fighting. And the killer finally had enough and grabbed a nearby knife off a magnetic bar and used it to cut her throat. So by this point, Susan had lost so much blood and the medical examiner had a difficult time obtaining a blood sample. Investigators searched the lounge for more evidence. On one of the windows near the front door, there was a partial Nike shoe print. Investigators theorized that after grabbing the cash from the register, the killer tried to run out the front door, but found it locked. He then tried to kick open a nearby window, but that didn't work either. Then investigators found that the latches on the back door had been broken, and next to the latches was a near-perfect Nike shoe print. So it seemed like the killer had successfully kicked the door open and finally made his escape there. While searching a row of bushes next to the lounge's parking lot, investigators found pieces of the bowling trophy that was used to bludgeon Susan. In a nearby field, they found a bar towel and wrapped up inside was a piece of the trophy and a piece of the ceiling tile. It appeared the killer had fled the bar and immediately started disposing of evidence. Okay, so at this point, detectives knew the suspects hid in the ceiling before attacking Susan, and they knew the attacker had stolen $600, but he'd also left behind a tip jar full of money and a bank bag with an additional $200. So you have to just put yourself in the position of the police at this point. So they're thinking, is it possible that robbery actually wasn't the motive? You know, they left all this other money behind. And they consider the possibility, the investigators that maybe the $600 was stolen like in, in an effort to stage, maybe to throw them off. So if this was true, then who would plan to kill this beloved bartender? And again, why? We'll answer those questions and more after the break. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program and it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. 
Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Stodd, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. Forty-two-year-old Susan Heiliger had been found dead behind the counter of the Country Club Lounge, where she worked as a bartender. She had been severely beaten and strangled before her throat was repeatedly slit. $600 was missing from the register, but a full tip jar full of money and a bank bag with $200 was left behind. Investigators wondered if the motive behind Susan's death truly was robbery or if the money was only stolen to throw off police. And they figured the best place to start was with the number one suspect in any woman's murder, her partner. Bill told them that he didn't have anything to do with Susan's death. He was devastated and in complete shock over the loss of his wife. He says he was at home when Susan was killed, and when Susan didn't come home after closing up the lounge, Bill thought maybe she was staying late to have a drink with the bar owners. But when she wasn't home by 4 a.m., Bill was a little pissed, and he asked himself, who's she partying with? It never crossed his mind that something bad happened to her. He wasn't one to worry about her safety when she worked. She was tall. She could hold her own. She could even beat him at arm wrestling. Our first degree Tiffany told us something similar about her grandma. You know, my grandmother was, she was tall. She was like six foot, six foot one, strong as hell. So 
she had to have done some serious damage to him as well. I don't have any idea why he would choose to throw hands with her because I damn sure wouldn't. I can tell you that. Bill told investigators that when he woke up on the morning of the 7th and realized that Susan still wasn't home, he was no longer angry. He was worried. He was terrified. And Bill had a feeling something was wrong. So he got in his car and he drove to the lounge. And when he got there, he saw the police cars and he saw yellow tape. And then he thought, oh, my God. And his his immediate thought was, I hope she's in the hospital. But then two officers came over to speak with him. And when he told them who he was, the officers avoided eye contact. And that's when Bill knew Susan was dead. So you have to understand, like, once Bill knew about Susan's death and murder, like, this trickled down to the rest of the family. She's got five fucking children. So you have to understand just, like, the emotional catastrophe of this day to this entire family. It's horrible. So investigators found Bill to be trustworthy and found nothing to suggest that he was responsible for her death. So they went back to their theory that Susan was killed in a robbery gone wrong. Meanwhile, the public was living in a state of fear, wondering how someone could do this to Susan. It just didn't seem possible that someone brutally stole the life of the beloved redheaded bartender, especially in the lounge, a bar that's known for its regulars. The fact that the lounge had so many regular customers would turn out to be extremely helpful to investigators. They were able to quickly put together a list of the 25 or so people who were at the lounge on the night Susan was killed. And less than a week after Susan was murdered, everyone on the list had been interviewed. They went around and they asked the patrons that were there that day, you know, did you notice anything suspicious? Did you notice anybody that just didn't leave or, you know, miraculously just kind of like disappeared? And that was it. People said that she, you know, went to the bathroom or what have you and... They never remembered seeing him come back. Dorothy Apgar was one of the people who had witnessed someone going into the bathroom, but never coming out. Dorothy told investigators that while she was at the lounge that night, she noticed a man she didn't recognize. A non-regular, if you will. And he was sitting by himself, and he was avoiding eye contact. So she kept paying attention. And she noticed that around 1.30 a.m., she saw him go into a bathroom but never coming out of the bathroom. So she said that she would have seen him leave. This is a direct quote. It was a straight line of her vision. She couldn't have missed it. And out of the 25 patrons interviewed, all but one had a solid alibi. And the person who didn't have one just so happened to be the same man who was seen entering the men's bathroom at around 1.30 a.m., but never exiting. That man was 20-year-old Jeffrey Michael Lobick, and we are looking at a picture of him right now. This is not when he was 20 years old. It's definitely a little bit like a middle-aged version of him. I can imagine him. I can imagine him 20 years before, though. Yeah. I mean, we'll obviously post this on Instagram, but uh, I he's, mean, he's, he's a red-haired man. Like a strawberry blonde-ish. Yeah. Don't sure don't is. disparage the redheads. Red <laughs> what did I say that was disparaging, friends? <laughs> just I that just, this guy well, has red hair. I a fact. <laughs> um, I, he looks real sad. He's got kind of like sad, droopy eyes, sort of a downturned mouth, um, slow, slopey shoulders. Everything is a little slopey. Adam's apples really pronounced, which is sketchy. kind of pointy. 
Sure. So Jeff was no stranger to police, and he was a known drug user with a lengthy criminal history. It was his M.O. That is how he had robbed multiple different bars. He would hide up in the ceiling tiles and drop down after. And it was typically after the person had left for the night, after they were done restocking an inventory or whatever they were supposed to do. So this guy was known for hiding in ceilings before he robbed a place. The only difference between Jeff's prior burglaries and the one at the lounge was that Jeff had never killed anyone before. He had come down, robbed it, and left. So we have no idea why this turned out so differently, why she was the one that ended up having her life taken, whereas no one else had. He hadn't murdered anybody else. Okay, but still, investigators thought this was their big break in this case. This had to be their guy. And it didn't really matter that Jeff had never killed anyone in his past burglaries. In fact, it kind of made sense. Maybe this was clear, like a clear definition. Robbery gone wrong. A woman is there. He doesn't expect to be there. And he, he poorly, poorly overreacts. So investigators set up an interview with Jeff five days after the murder. And when he showed up, detectives looked him up and down. And they immediately noted that he was wearing Nike shoes. And these Nike shoes matched the shoe print found on the urinal and the back door at the lounge. Investigators asked Jeff if they could have his shoes for evidence, and he complied. Then they began his interview. According to Jeff, he'd been at the bar on June 7th, but he had nothing to do with the robbery or the murder. He said he left the bar and went to hang out with his girlfriend. Investigators asked if he ever went into the crawl space, and Jeff said no. He had never been into the crawl space in the ceiling. And when they pushed and probed him harder, he simply stopped answering their questions and he asked for a lawyer. He was ultimately allowed to leave, but he walked out of the station with no shoes on. Jeff's Nikes were compared to the print that were left at the scene. And shock of shocks, they were a perfect match. However, there was no blood and there were no ceiling insulation fibers found on his shoes. And because the prints, the Nike prints, were technically found in places where any patron could go, having a shoe print match wasn't exactly a smoking gun. In fact, it wasn't even enough to obtain a search warrant for his house, let alone an arrest warrant. So investigators would have to keep digging to find something more substantial. And they told Susan's family that they had a suspect, but they never told Susan's family who this suspect was. They simply said that they needed more evidence to charge said suspect and that they were working on it. And, and Susan's family trusted that. My understanding was that he had an alibi. And for that reason, they couldn't arrest him because he had somebody vouching for the fact that he was with them that night. And they couldn't, of course, place him if somebody saying that he was there with them. So that was my understanding as to why they could not make an arrest for this person. And since Jeff said that he was with his girlfriend that night, we assume that she acted as his alibi. The detectives did their best to build a case against Jeff, but the forensics weren't there. Because remember, this is 1987. DNA wasn't widely used. There was no cell phones and little surveillance. So the case fell apart. Truly, I don't know how people solve anything back then. Yeah. No. The more I think about that, when people solve like shit in the 70s and the 80s, I'm like, how? How do you solve anything? How did you know anybody was anywhere ever? Ever. 
ever conclusively. No. That's that's the scariest part. And that's why people who have been in jail since the 70s, I'm like, you could be innocent. You could be innocent. Yeah, like, are yeah. you sure? You have nothing conclusive. DNA is conclusive. Confessions, if they were forced, it was witness, uh, eyewitness testimony. Which was not great. And it was, it was also people, you know, telling on other people and saying, you know, that this is what happened. Oh, oh my God. That's I terrible. Can't but like, how fucked up that was. So fucked. Then. So fucked. Sorry to interrupt, Jack. Uh, so, anyways, this case ended up falling apart. And as time continued to pass without developments, Susan's case was put on the back burner, as so many cases, cold cases are. And her family tried to keep the detectives on top of the case, but there was only so much they could do with no new leads or evidence. Every few years, detectives looked at Susan's case files to see if there was anything that they missed, but there wasn't. Meanwhile, investigators kept a close eye on Jeff. And he'd been committing more burglaries. It seems that almost getting arrested for murder wasn't really enough to like rattle him to turn his life around. And in 1989, two years later, he was convicted of burglary twice and received probation for those crimes. And at this point, detectives tried to speak to Jeff yet again. But Jeff, old Jeffy boy, he repeated what he said earlier. Then two years later in 1991, Jeff was convicted of burglary and trafficking stolen property. He received a three-year sentence, but only served four months before he was released. In 1992, Jeff was convicted of another burglary and was sentenced to 15 years in prison. So finally, Jeff was behind bars for a lengthy amount of time. And while he wasn't there for Susan's murder, investigators were still comforted knowing he couldn't hurt anyone, at least for a while. So as the years passed without a resolution in this case, you have to just imagine how Tiffany's family was feeling and wonder how they were dealing with some of these deep-seated sort of emotions and like traumatic feelings they'd been experiencing and trying to cope with since Susan's murder. So Susan, or Red, as she was known, like everyone in the world, she was imperfect. And just like the main suspect in her murder, Susan struggled with addiction, which caused rifts within her family. She also struggled with addiction herself earlier on in her life which created some issues with her children, five children. Her oldest was my father, Doug. So at the time of her passing, actually, all of her children were estranged from her, which kind of makes it even sadder, you know, because at that point they don't have, you know, the closure. There's so many things left unsaid at that point. It's heartbreaking because family drama happens all the time, but you always expect to make up because you always think that there's going to be more time. And there usually is, unless the tragic and unexpected happens. Susan's children were robbed of that opportunity to reconcile with their mother. And this haunted all of them. It is very difficult when you have so many things left unsaid that now you're never going to get um, the opportunity to work through those things, which I think was probably the biggest cloud that followed them around whether it be built or what have you, I think that that spawned a lot of the issues. Well, of course, aside from the fact that they hadn't caught the person. And even though Susan had been estranged from her children, her husband Bill stayed close to the family. We grew up knowing him as well. He stayed closer to the family, of course, because those were his stepchildren. And, you know, it, it did bring 
the family closer together once she passed. I think a lot of the issues were resolved after that. You know, you realized how short life really is, and they they patched things up. So he kind of remained a constant in our life, even you know, after her passing. Bill tried his best to bring the family closer together, but the ripple effects of Susan's unsolved murder were potent and powerful. The impacts of this tragedy had affected her family members in many ways. Alcoholism, drug addiction, unresolved trauma. And since Tiffany had been so young when her grandma was killed, she couldn't quite understand what was going on around her in real time, of course, and couldn't understand why her family was struggling so much. She probably normalized it. But as you get older, as you understand emotional intelligence, as she did... Tiffany started to grasp the severity of the situation and uh, the catalyst for the situation. Her grandma wasn't the only victim in this crime. I mean, everyone in her family was affected and they were victims too. It doesn't really hit you until you're a little bit older and you kind of grasp death a little bit better, you know, and to know that it was ripped from someone like that. And it really did tear that whole side of the family apart. Well, a lot of her children ended up having drug addictions and, you know, passing away after, you know, having those drug addictions. We had grown up with this dark cloud over the entire family and seen the havoc that it wreaked on all of them in their personal lives, their lives with their, with their own children, their drug abuse and alcohol abuse and everything. It was just you know, and a lot of that is the simple fact that there there was no justice for her and, you know, they didn't have the closure. Not that there's ever really closure, you know, but they didn't have any of that. Eventually, the ripple effect reached Tiffany. My father passed from extended drug use as well. So her death was really a catalyst for these addiction issues to, of course... I I do believe that it was kind of inherited, you know, an addictive personality kind of, but it really just like catapulted their addiction just exponentially. And of course, my, my father at that point, being the oldest of the five children, then really had to step in and kind of be their parent. And at that same point, he kind of ended up being kind of a a crappy parent to us because he was tired of parenting, you know, because he raised his four siblings. Then, you know, my sister struggled with addiction as well. She saw a lot of it through my father and she struggled with parenting her son because of her addiction. And again, it just really, really wreaked havoc. And of course, people make their own decisions as well. But there's something to be said for learned behaviors. Through all the trauma, pain, addiction, and loss, Tiffany's family tried to keep hope alive. But it dwindled with every year that passed without an arrest. Then, in 2004, just when the family was almost all out of hope, detectives contacted them. They said they were reopening Susan's cold case. 
Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. So the grandmother of her first degree, 42-year-old Susan Heiliger, had been brutally murdered in 1987. Over the next 18 years, Tiffany's family continued suffering loss after loss, and they had given up hope that Susan's murderer would ever be brought to justice. But then, in 2004, detectives told Susan's family that they were revisiting her cold case, and the family was thrilled. They ended up just diving into the cold case. I don't know if it bond them to look at it again, or if they just organically decided, hey, you know, it's been 18 years, let's kind of shake this tree and see what comes loose. But it could have been a mixture of both. At this point in her life, Tiffany was 19 years old. I had, you know, just graduated high school and it was real emotional when it happened because we were not expecting it, of course. So, you know, I was a, I was a young adult. I was elated. Jim Coyle, the new detective looking into the case, seemed motivated to solve Susan's murder. The family started to feel hopeful again. I knew that he picked the case up and he really ran with it. And I think sometimes when detectives pick up a cold case, it's kind of like they're not always super into it. You know, it's like, oh, let's give this a fresh pair of eyes. But you don't know how invested they are. And this this guy was just deep in it. He was super invested and finding him. And and if it wasn't him, then whoever did it, which I mean, they knew, <laughs> but he was 100% invested in getting justice for my grandmother. And it's not that the original detective, Kelly Goswick, wasn't motivated to solve the murder. He just didn't have the luck or the timing. There was a lot to be said for him. You know, he told he told Jeffrey Lubick, hey, I'm going to see you in jail for this murder. Way back in the day when they couldn't prosecute him for it, they didn't have enough on him. Susan's family wasn't privy to what was going on in the renewed investigation. But here's what they would later find out. As it turns out, in late 2003, detectives found out that Jeff Lobick received an early release for the 15-year burglary sentence. And that's when Detective Coyle and his partner, Keith Barton, decided to start investigating Susan's case again. While Susan's family was elated to find out that the case was being looked at again, they would quickly find out that justice would not be swift. So during that time, they were building the case. 
against him. However, we went through multiple different prosecutors on the case, whether it be somebody retired or somebody was promoted or they just moved him to a different case. So, of course, each time that they bring in a new prosecutor, it takes time for them to, you know, catch up on the case and, you know, try to put their case together against him. So this happened multiple times. It was quite frustrating, of course, I'm sure as you can guess. But the wheels of justice sometimes turn very slowly, we all know. And then seemingly out of nowhere, something huge happened. On March 5th, 2005, 6,485 days after Susan was brutally murdered, a grand jury had indicted 38-year-old Jeff for the first-degree murder of Susan Heiliger. And immediately after the indictment was official, detectives arrested Jeff while he was eating dinner. I love that. And remember the original detective that we told you about, the one who vowed to arrest Jeff. His name was Kelly Goswick. So at this point, Kelly was working as a sergeant of patrol officers, so he was no longer a detective. But the current detectives, Coyle and Barton, they knew how important Susan's case was to Goswick, so they invited him along for the arrest of Jeff. The detective that did end up actually, you know, getting it across the finish line called the original detective and said, hey, do you want to go with me to pick him up? And so he did. He went with him to pick him up. And he told him, hey, I told you, I was going to see you in jail for this. And he did. Once Jeff was in the backseat of the cruiser, the three detectives embraced. Their hard work over the last 18 years had finally paid off. And Goswick had fulfilled his promise. And when Susan's family was notified that a suspect had been finally arrested, finally been arrested, they were elated. My sister actually called me to let me know that they had they had finally made an arrest. Of course, we were beyond excited about it. Just because, you know, again, it's something that had hung over us for our entire lives, pretty much. And, you know, we were robbed of ever being able to have a relationship with her grandmother because of his selfish actions. So when Tiffany saw how old Jeff was, she did the math and found out that she was currently the same age Jeff was when he murdered Susan. And this fact really messed with Tiffany's mind. I was the same age as he was when he committed these crimes, which is just absolutely boggles my mind because, you know, I just graduated high school. You know, you're thinking about what you're going to do for the rest of your life. And I can tell you robbery wasn't on my list. While the family was overjoyed and arrest had been made, they couldn't help but wonder why now? What changed? I knew once they made an arrest, which, of course, I had already known previously just by, you know, doing my research on, you know, the case itself and reading articles and what have you, that he was a prime suspect. So I knew, but then once they said that they made the arrest, I was like, what in the world? Like, I thought that they couldn't get him. I thought that he had an alibi. And then, you know, come to find out, 18 years, 18 years makes a lot of changes. <laughs> so how did investigators gather enough evidence to finally arrest Jeff after all these years? It turns out on June 30th of 2004, Detective Coyle and his partner, Detective Barton, 
went to speak with Jeff at the construction site he was currently working in Ocala, Florida. So before they got there, Coyle came up with a ruse in an attempt to get Jeff to talk a little bit more freely. So you have to remember that in 1987, Jeff hired an attorney and refused to speak with police any further once they started really pressing him with some of these key questions. So this ruse had to include a lot of things. The main thing was the detectives were going to tell Jeff that after the department moved locations, they realized that some of their files on Susan's case had been lost and they needed to go around and recollect old statements. So the detectives then planned on playing dumb about the details of the murder. And they just wanted to hear what he had to say. And they want to pretend like they're they're very new to the case. They're playing dumb. And they were going to see what, what kind of uh, things they could elicit from him based on that. So once the interview officially began, Coyle asked Jeff to tell him what he told investigators back in 1987. Jeff said he was a drug addict from 84 to 88 and couldn't remember much of what he had been doing during that time. Coyle, recognizing an opportunity to trick Jeff right now, said, please tell me again why you were in the ceiling on the 7th. So Jeff said he used the urinal to crawl into the ceiling so he could smoke crack or weed. He doesn't remember which. And after getting high, he climbed back down, rode his bike home and hung out with his girlfriend. So this is super important because this is not what Jeff told police back in 1987. Because in 87, he denied ever being in the ceiling at all. So that means he either couldn't keep his lies straight or he didn't think admitting that he was in the crawl space would get him into any trouble now. Now the detectives finally got Jeff to admit that he had been in the ceiling in the crawl space, Coyle tried to prod him into confessing by telling a few more lies. Coyle told Jeff that they found Susan's blood on the Nike shoes they'd taken for evidence in 1987. They also said they found Jeff's DNA at the crime scene. Jeff said he may not remember much from his drug-induced hazes, but he knew he had nothing to do with what happened. The conversation ended there, but that was okay. The detectives had what they needed, proof that Jeff had been in the ceiling on June 7th, 1987. He had always denied the fact that he had ever been up in up in the attic or the, the crawl space or what have you that he dropped down out of. He had always, always denied being up there, period. So when they came back to him, 18 years later, and he had changed his story and said that he, yes, he was up there, but he went up there to smoke crack or marijuana or whatever he was doing at the time. So once he told them, yes, he had been up there, that then they had what they needed to go ahead and finally make that arrest. Because if he, you know, if he acknowledged the fact that he was up there, he was the only one that was up there. The fact that Jeff implicated himself after all this time is perplexing to say the least. Maybe he just completely forgot what he said. I don't, I really don't know. But I'm damn glad that he did. Susan's family finally had their arrest, but now they needed their conviction. So on July 21st of 2008, Jeff Lobick's trial began. It was a day Susan's family had been waiting 21 years for, and it played out exactly how they theorized. Jeff entered the bathroom before closing time, climbed into the ceiling, leaving the shoe print behind. There he smoked either weed or crack. 
and waited for Susan to close up the bar and leave. He listened for a long period of silence, and then when he heard it, he climbed through the ceiling, he entered the bar, and then he ran into Susan. The prosecution theorizes she had been in the cooler taking inventory, and Jeff couldn't hear her, so he thought she'd left. And it's at this point that Jeff attacks Susan, and they fight, and Susan fights for her life. And at this point, he grabs the bowling trophy, hits her multiple times, and pieces are breaking off with every blow. It's it's awful. So Susan falls down at some point on the floor, but she's not succumbed to her injuries. Jeff strangles her. I mean, he, he he's realizing this isn't working. He strangles her, and then he uses a knife to silence her on her neck. I'm sorry. I hate, like, going over the details, but after he kills Susan, he empties the register. Jeff realizes he has to clean up evidence, but he didn't come prepared for that. So he grabs the knife and any trophy pieces he can find. Then he goes to the bathroom area and picks up broken ceiling tiles. He wraps a bar towel around everything and tries to leave in a panic. But the front door is locked. He tries to kick out some windows. That doesn't work. So he goes to the back door and he's able to kick it open, leaving that shoe print behind. When he finally gets outside, Jeff starts getting rid of evidence as he runs home. So to help bolster their theory, the prosecution called a jail inmate named Alan cough to the stand. So Alan's interesting, and he testifies that one day he rode in a jail transport van with Jeff, our homie Jeff. And during this ride, Alan asked Jeff why he'd been arrested. And Jeff said that he'd killed a woman during a robbery. Stupid fucking Jeff. So Alan testified that Jeff said that he strangled Susan. And this is really important piece of testimony because police had never released the full extent of Susan's injuries to the media, which means that no one but the police and the killer knew that Susan was strangled. And when the prosecution asked Alan what Jeff's demeanor was like during this conversation, Alan said that Jeff wasn't bothered at all. He had zero remorse for his actions. And in fact, Jeff told Alan a minimum of 10 times during that transport ride that no one would ever prove that he killed Susan. On cross-examination, the defense made Alan out to be an untrustworthy source. They told the jury they shouldn't take a criminal's word for it. He clearly just wanted to get a reduced sentence and was making stuff up to get a deal. Well, Billy, what do you think? Uh, You know what? This is what every, I don't think that there's ever been a time that a jailhouse informant has ever uh, been attacked by a uh, defense uh, and attorney and the defense turning to the jury and saying, how are you going to trust a criminal? It happens all the time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the fact that he has, uh, he had that, you know, um, specific piece of information about the strangling was, was gave, gave, gave his testimony that much more of uh, veracity. So Jeff's attorneys focused their defense on convincing the jury that the prosecution had zero evidence tying Jeff to Susan's murder. His defense said that nothing had changed since the beginning of the investigation in 87 and that they didn't have enough evidence to arrest Jeff. And the only thing different they had now was a confession, one that police had to lie to get. Interesting. The defense also admitted that Jeff had gone into the ceiling the night only to get high, only to do drugs, but it didn't mean he was a killer. And the defense also said that the prosecution's case was completely circumstantial. The only physical link they had was this Nike shoe print on a urinal. 
and went on the back door. But those prints didn't actually prove that Jeff was the murderer. Because not only are Nike shoes super popular, especially at this time, the prints were found in places where the public was allowed access to. So was it significant? Those were the main questions. And in addition to saying Jeff was not the murderer, the defense questioned if the motive for Susan's murder was actually robbery. The defense brought up how a tip jar with lots of money and a bank bag with $200 were left behind. So if Susan was killed in a robbery gone wrong, like the prosecution said, then why didn't the suspect take all of the money there? The defense said Susan's murder didn't seem like a robbery at all. It seemed like a crime of passion. Susan's husband or her kids could have murdered her and then staged a robbery to cover it all up. But the police never investigated that route because they immediately focused on Jeff. Then the defense dropped somewhat of a bombshell. Not only did law enforcement not investigate other avenues, they also lost key evidence in the case. Remember the items found in the bushes and field near the lounge? The bar towel with the pieces of the ceiling tile and the pieces of the trophy? Well, those items disappeared sometime between 87 and 2008. No one knew where they were. So after he had committed this heinous crime, he ran. And while he was running through a field, he dropped something. I don't know what it was that he dropped specifically, but they had picked it up as evidence against him. But lo and behold, once it came time for the trial, this piece of evidence was no longer around. They could not find it anywhere. So they did have to go ahead and prosecute without that piece of evidence. It's just baffling because you assume that they keep everything all together, whether it be in a box or I'm sure there were several boxes in this case, but you would have to imagine that it would be with other things, not just on its own. So when both sides rested their case, the jury started deliberating. And after five hours, the jury wrote to the judge saying they were fucking deadlocked. How crushing. They could not come to a unanimous decision. God, God, how crushing for the family, you know? So the judge told the jury to go back and keep trying, try again. He was granting them more time. An hour later, they wrote the judge saying there was absolutely literally no way they could ever make a unanimous decision. God, how heart-wrenching. One juror refused to convict, and this was the same juror that would frequently fall asleep during the case. My mom told me that he struggled with sundowners and obviously keeping his attention where it should be. So he was kind of always just off in la-la land or would fall asleep in the middle of things and, you know, It is extremely infuriating that that's the person that refused to convict when you weren't even paying attention at all. On July 25th, the judge declared a mistrial. Susan's family was devastated. It was heartbreaking, of course, because we had waited for this moment for so long. And, you know, seeing all the evidence laid out, there was no way that we would have thought that somebody would not convict. It was a very strong case against him. So we were just, we were blown away when, you know, the mistrial happened. You really just want to see, again, somebody being held responsible for what they did. Like this was an absolute horrendous crime, what he did to her. And to just be 
walking free. You know, she had her life robbed from her. Her children, her five children, her two grandchildren all had her life ripped from our lives. And here he is just you know, doing whatever he wants, just roaming the streets. He's out here living the life that she didn't get to live, which is just absolutely infuriating. Then the family found out the prosecution was going to take Jeff back to trial and try again. We were excited that we were going to get our second chance. And again, we we knew that it was a very strong case against him. So we had very high hopes, but at the same time, we had high hopes the time before that, too, and had our hearts broken. So while we were pretty confident, at the same time, we were also very nervous that the same thing could potentially happen again. But our morale was was still pretty high because we knew that it was a strong case. On October 13th, 80 days after the mistrial, Jeff was back in court. And the retrial was almost an exact replication of the first. The prosecution maintained the same strategy. They knew they had a strong case and most likely would have secured a conviction the first time had it not been for this one juror. The defense also stuck with their strategy from the first trial. The defense was that he was up there smoking crack and he had absolutely nothing to do with the murder itself. Like he went up there, he smoked, and then he ended up leaving sometime during the evening and went home and he was home with his girlfriend or what have you at the time. The defense was still sticking with, you know, just flat out wasn't me. Unlike the first trial, the jury was able to reach a conclusion this time. And when Tiffany's family heard that the jury was done deliberating, their hearts started racing and memories of the first trial flooded in. It's such a range of emotions that go through you because you're excited, you're hopeful that, you know, finally you'll be able to close this chapter. But at the same time, we're also very nervous and anxious because we've seen, you know, how things can go sideways. So all of those emotions are running through you. But all in all, we were We were just hopeful. On October 17th, Jeffrey Michael Lobick was found guilty and was immediately sentenced to life in prison. He was the same age Susan was when her life was taken from her, 42. We were all ecstatic. I mean, you never really put it behind you, but thrilled to finally have somebody being held responsible and being held accountable for their actions and for what they did to our family. And... Everybody was just beyond excited. Even with a guilty verdict, questions remain. Like, why did Jeff kill Susan when he hadn't hurt anyone before or after? It seemed so senseless and unnecessary. That's part of what has been so perplexing the whole time is that it's not even that she interrupted the robbery. She was still there. She was still actively working. It's not like she left and said, oh, crap, I forgot my purse and came back. Like she was there the whole time and being up in the ceiling, he could clearly hear that she was down there, you know, restocking the bar or in the cooler doing whatever it was that she was doing. He could hear her. So that's the thing that has just boggled our minds is, you know, if this was just to get the $600 or whatever was in the till, Why wouldn't you have just waited? Like, why was it her that had to pay the ultimate price? So for a family who had been hungry for justice for 21 years, how did it feel to finally get it? 
Was it satisfying? Did it change anything? Things changed for the better. I think there was, it was just a lot of relief. A weight had been lifted off of everyone's shoulders at that point. My aunt cleaned up and she kind of got her life back on track. You could see a big difference in the family once it happened. So, yes, it was a lot. It was a lot of relief and a lot of happiness for a long time. Tiffany and her family still wonder what their lives would be like today if Susan had been killed. I believe that the ripple effect is probably the the best way to describe it. Because the the crimes that people commit don't just affect that one person or the two people involved in it, you know, especially in this case, there's the two. I mean, it just rippled through the entire family and her children and then her children's children, just everybody suffered for it. You know, who knows what the family would have been like had this not happened. You know, I think that there would have been a lot less addiction, a lot less death. It's very sad to see how these things affect so many people beyond just the one person. In this story, you see the true ripple effects of not just violent crime, but the ripple effects when there's no justice for victims. Being connected to a crime changes your DNA. It changes who you are and how you see the world. And it changes the trajectory of your life. So justice is so incredibly necessary as a means to restore order, not just criminally, according to the judicial system, but restoring order within us as well. Justice is essential for healing and for hope. And it's something every victim's family deserves. huge thank you to Tiffany for being our first degree on this episode. If you're listening out there and you have a story to tell, you can email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Billy Jensen, at Alexis Linkletter at Jack Vanek. Join our Facebook group by searching the first degree in the search bar. We are talking true crime all the time and check back tomorrow for a brand new episode of killing time right in your feed. And remember only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close. But not that close. Did you just do this by yourself last time, Lex? Yeah, I did alone, I think. Oh, or did Billy, <laughs> did we do it? No, nah, we know. did it. We, we did a little bit of it together. <laughs> I think I hijacked most of it. But <laughs> what were the days? <laughs> Happy, Happy lemon vanilla cupcake day. lemon cupcake, cupcake day. Ew. Uh, burn yeah. that day to the ground, frankly. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing by Haley Gray, your epic Haley. Sources for this episode are Court Records, Pinellas News, Ocala Star Banner, Tampa Bay Times, Monsters and Critics, Tampa Tribune, and as always, our first three guests is always our largest source. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. 
Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.